This past summer, Andy and I were at a uh, pastor's conference, and across the room, I recognized an acquaintance named James. Now, James and I had only ever talked on the phone, and uh, I wanted to go meet him face-to-face, and also wanted Andy to meet him um, as well. And so I said, hey, Andy, let's go. There's James over there. Um, let's go uh, meet him. And so we walk over, and I said, hey, brother, it's Clint Patronella. Silence. Awkward handshake. Confused look. So I just figured, hey, he's having a hard time putting all the pieces together. So I said I'd help him out. And before he could respond, I said, James, it's Clint Patronella from Boston. We talked on the phone a few weeks ago about the Act 29 assessment. And he responded, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I said, aren't you James Ford? And he said, no, my name's Caleb. So to say I was embarrassed would be an understatement, right? Have you ever mistaken a person for somebody else and just wished you could crawl into a hole? More than once, right? Mistaking someone's identity is embarrassing, and it's humorous for those watching. Andy loves that story because she's just watching the whole train wreck unfold, right? Today, we're looking at the question, who is Jesus? But see, mistaking his identity is not simply embarrassing. In fact, our passage today says it's tragic. Because see, the stakes are much higher than just mere social awkwardness. See, if we don't know who he is, we won't understand what it means to follow him or if we even should follow him. And even more than that, our passage today says that getting his identity right is a matter of life and death. So this morning, we're looking at the question, who is Jesus? And we're going to ask, what does his identity mean for us? And as we walk through Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38, we're going to see the identification, we're going to see the interpretation, and we're going to see the implication of Jesus' identity. So let's jump right in to verse 27 to see the identification of Jesus. The words will be up on the screen. It says, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? Just to kind of set the context, we are at the very midway, halfway point in Mark's gospel. And so far throughout our series, we have seen Jesus do some amazing things. We've seen him have authority and power over disasters and demons. He's shown power over disease and death. He's fed thousands of people with nothing more than a Lunchable. His teaching has been clear and compelling. He's shown mercy and love to outsiders, right? We've seen that Jesus has this way of walking into a room and immediately being able to identify the person in the room who needs his love and mercy and grace more than anybody. He just gets it right away, and he makes a beeline over to that person. We've seen Jesus challenge the ruling class who make following God impossible. He's confirmed the elitist who look down on others because they're different than they are. It's been remarkable. And now in chapter eight, we're gonna see each week the tone is gonna take a dramatic shift. In fact, the very speed of Mark's gospel is gonna slow down. You see, in eight chapters, Mark has covered the first three years of Jesus' ministry. It's been bam, one story after another. And now in the last eight chapters, we're gonna get the last few months of Jesus' life. 
And now they're starting on a journey to Jerusalem for the last time. Mark tells us that they start in Caesarea Philippi, which is about 100 miles from Jerusalem. So over the next eight chapters, we're going to see them go on this journey towards Jerusalem. And as they're beginning their journey, Jesus starts off the conversation. And he says, hey, guys, who do people say that I am? What he's trying to find out is, man, what's the word on the street? What's trending on Twitter about me right now? What's the hashtag? What's the Drudge Report say? What's Anderson Cooper saying about me? That's what he's getting at. Look, with their, look at me at verse 28 to see his answer. And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. See, in all three of these responses, all of them are essentially prophets, right? Calling him a prophet meant that Jesus had kind of achieved this celebrity status. He was well known. What's interesting is the streets haven't changed much in 2,000 years. See, most people will give Jesus some sort of special status, right? They'll say, hey, man, Jesus, great teacher, moral leader, par excellence. I mean, Jesus is a great source of inspiration. You're feeling down? Man, Jesus will lift you up. He's an amazing example of love. One among many. If you're looking for self-improvement, Jesus is your guy. But it doesn't amount to anything more than that. He's never Lord and Savior, fully God and fully man. And so Jesus turns to them in verse 29 and he says, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he, Jesus, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So what's happening here? After the disciples kind of throw out the popular street-level opinion, which Jesus doesn't even really interact with, right? He kind of just sidesteps it and says, hey, more importantly, who do you say that I am? Jesus has this way of just getting right to the heart of the matter. Now, up until this point, if you look all through the first chapters of Mark, the disciples have only called him teacher. They've never called him Lord. They've never called him Messiah. They've never called him the Christ. He's been teacher. They've asked themselves, as they've seen Jesus do these amazing things, right? Who is this then that even the waves and the seas obey him? Who is this then that can feed thousands of people with nothing more than a little boy's sack lunch? And now Jesus wants to know, where are you at? See, they're about to face the hardest part of their ministry. And it's time for the disciples to make up their minds about who Jesus is. See, they need to see him for who he really is if they're going to follow him where he's going to lead them. Faith and discipleship require you to get in the game, not stay on the sidelines, removed from the risk. And this is Jesus starting to narrow in on who they think he is. See, Jesus asked them on the way on this journey, not at the very end when they've seen him in his full glory resurrected. See, he wants them to make that call in faith, not when they have all of the answers and proof is finally in their hand. And so far in Mark's gospel, we've kind of seen a range of answers given about who Jesus is. Some have just kind of misunderstood him, not quite put all the pieces together. We've even seen some oppose him, right? There's a group of people right now starting to plot his death. Some have actually put their faith in him. He, they've seen him do amazing things and they've said, that's my guy. I'm going to believe in him. And we've seen others, after hard teaching, 
just walk away. What's amazing is that those who seem to get it have been the ones on the outside, the marginalized, the religious, the people you would think who would really get it, they've been the most skeptical. At this point, the only true declarations of Jesus' identity have come from the narrator and the very first verse of the Bible. Mark begins his gospel and says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The narrator tells you, hey, Jesus is the Christ. The next time we get that is God the Father at Jesus' baptism. He says, this is my son and with whom I am well pleased. And you know the other figures who get it right? The demons. They say, hey, you're the Christ. You're the son of God. And Jesus shuts up their mouth. See, by now, the question, now the question is pointedly asked to the disciples. Who do you say that I am? Now, Peter, love Peter. He's like the natural spokesman for the group. He's that guy who hates the awkward silence. He's always going to fill it with his unthought sentiments. He's the guy that breaks the silence. So into this vacuum of silence, right, you can imagine it just setting the scene. Jesus is like, well, who do you say that I am? And everyone kind of clams up like, ooh, I didn't know you were going to get personal, Jesus. Peter blurts out, you are the Christ. Now the readers, we know, man, Peter just nailed it. He hit it right on the head. Awesome. We've been waiting for somebody to get there. And Peter has just identified Jesus as the Christ. Now, we've got to do a little bit of work here because we often think that Christ is Jesus' last name. But that's not the case at all. Christ is not his last name. It's a title. It's just the, he, the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word Messiah, which just means the anointed one. And so if you dip back into the Old Testament, you'll find that there were three people who were uh, anointed for God's work. There were kings, there were priests, and there were prophets. Anytime God had work for them to do, when they're beginning their ministry, they would be anointed. They were set apart, committed for their work by God. And these people would be given a task to lead God's people so that they would thrive and flourish in their relationship with God and as a society. They, they were kind of the people to lead the people along the way. But as you read the Old Testament, you find this constant theme that no matter who's in charge, no matter how many sacrifices are made, no matter how many times God sends another prophet, lasting change never comes. And so you start to see this theme arise from the pages of the Old Testament. It's this song, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, until this cycle ends? You can almost hear Bono just singing it, right? Psalm 40 in the background. And the disappointment of many failed anointed ones grew into this longing. When is the anointed one going to come? The one who will finally bring all the struggle to an end. The king to end all kings. The prophet to end all prophets. The priest to end all all priests, the one who will rule with justice, lead us to righteousness and bring about peace and wholeness that our souls long for. Now, Peter has just looked at Jesus and identified him as the long-awaited Messiah. He says, you are God's Messiah. You're everything we've been waiting for. You're everything we've been longing for. Now, a couple things to note. First, Jesus doesn't correct him or deny what Peter has said. When Peter says, you're the Christ, he just receives it, which is an acknowledgement that, yep, 
You're absolutely right. We'll find out Jesus is not shy about confronting you if you've got something wrong. He receives it, which is to say, you're absolutely right, Peter. He accepts the confession as spot on. He is the Christ. Now, second, he tells them, don't tell anyone. Now, at first, that sounds odd to us because we're like, aren't we supposed to tell everybody about who Jesus is? And the reason that Jesus doesn't want them to tell them yet is because they don't have a clue what it means that he's the Messiah. See, he's rightly identified him, but we're gonna find out he has no clue what it actually means for Jesus to be the Messiah. See, what he knows is they've grown up as good Jewish boys and they've got all kinds of expectations kind of filled into them to, 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 uh, of what this Messiah, who this person would be. And these expectations have been formed part in scripture, part from folklore theology, and part from their own desires of what they want Messiah to be. And so before they can be his ambassadors going out and telling people about him as Messiah, he needs them all to get on the same page. And he's gonna spend the next several conversations as we walk through Mark to help manage their expectations and set them straight on what it means for him to be the Messiah. So that's how Peter answers the question. He looks at Jesus and he says, you are the Messiah. But what about you? How do you answer the question? And I mean actually you, us in this room. How do we answer the question, who is Jesus? Is he the Messiah? Is he just a prophet? Anyone think maybe he's a charlatan? Maybe he just fooled everybody? Is he just a good example? Kind of someone I can look to when I'm trying to figure out which way I should go? Like a source of inspiration? Or, and this is where I struggle, is Jesus just a better version of you? What I mean is, does your version of Jesus look more like you than Jesus revealed in Scripture. See, I think one of the great tendencies in a world where truth is relative and, uh, is to fashion Jesus into our image. And so what ends up happening is the Jesus that we follow, his agenda looks just like our agenda, right? He even has the same political affiliations as we do. He, like, he happens to just like all the things that you like. He likes to hang with the people you like to hang. Is he just a better version of you? We've got to be honest with that question and make a call because it's the most important question we'll ever answer. Who is Jesus? So let's get back to the text. Peter has correctly identified Jesus as the Messiah, but what does it mean? Let's look at the next verses and see the interpretation. Look with me at verse 31. And he began to teach them, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. All right. Jesus begins to help them understand what it means that he's the Messiah. See, he's made some allusions to it before. There have been hints. But now Jesus speaks plainly. Nothing is veiled. No parables. Just plain, clear, and direct speech. And he tells them what's going to happen at the end of this journey. See, this trip is in a brocation, all right? They're not going to get some good time together as bros. This trip will define their lives forever. He doesn't tell them, look, it could get ugly, all right? If, you, if you're kind of sensing the political tide and you've heard the whispers and chatter, I just want you to know it could get ugly. No, no, no. 
He's not trying to flex his prophecy skills either. What he needs them to know with clarity and certainty what's going to happen so that when it happens, when they see their Savior die, when they start to question everything, they'll remember, oh wait, Jesus told us that this was how it was going to be. You see, when they see their Savior die, they're going to be tempted to think these last three years were a complete waste of time. What Jesus needs them to know is that everything is going according to plan. He is helping them move from just the mere identification to the interpretation of what it means for him to be the Messiah. And so he starts off and he says, look, the Son of Man. What you need to know is the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite way to talk about himself. In all the Gospels, over 80 times when Jesus is referring to himself, he uses the phrase, the Son of Man. It's his favorite title. If Jesus had a letter jacket right on the back, Son of Man. This would have been his social media handle, Son of Man. Now what it is, it's a throwback reference to Daniel chapter 7, an Old Testament book filled with good prophecy and about the life of Daniel living in Babylon. And it's here in Daniel 7 that he has this vision for this person he calls the Son of Man. Listen to some of the words he describes this one. This one receives authority and glory and sovereign power. Daniel says, this Son of Man, all peoples and nations and men of every language will worship him because his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never end. You know, at the time, there were a lot of theories about uh, who the Messiah would be. And people would cherry pick passages all throughout the Old Testament and say, man, I think Messiah is going to be like this. And there were also a lot of wannabe messiahs out there, guys who had a lot of bravado. They'd have some charisma. They'd gather some people and be like, hey, man, I'm Messiah. They'd gather a group of people and some weapons, and they'd try to lead these revolts against Rome. And every single time, Rome would come down, squash them like ants under the heavy foot of the Roman Empire. But none of these wannabes ever dared took the title of son of man. That one was kind of off limits, right? That one was a hard sell to be like, look, I'm the one that everybody is going to worship, right? But from the earliest days of his ministry, Jesus took up that title. See, since nobody was using it, it was a title that he could fill with his own meaning. Yes, the Messiah will deliver God's people, but you also need to know this Messiah is going to suffer. In fact, Jesus says he has to. Did you catch that little word, must? He said the Son of Man must suffer. It didn't say the Son of Man is going to or it's just going to happen. It's just going to work itself out that way. He's saying the Son of Man must suffer, must be killed, and must rise again. This was very hard for them to hear. He is now challenging all of their preset expectations. So when Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes that he must be killed, you gotta know that when they hear that, it's like everything else fades away. You know when you hear bad news? You hear it and it drops and it's like the person's talking, but you don't even hear their voice anymore. All you can do is think about that first couple lines of the bad news. I gotta believe they didn't even hear Jesus say that he would rise again. They just heard him say he's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected by everybody, and he's going to be killed. 
And it's at that point, like the ringing begins in the ears and they can't even hear what comes next. Everything just fades to static. It's unthinkable to them that Messiah would be defeated and publicly humiliated. See, for them, the Messiah was this glorious and powerful figure, not a suffering one. Not a suffering one. But Jesus says, I am the Messiah, and what I've come to do is to die. That's the mission. Look at verse 32, what happens next. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter does what Peter does best. He sticks his foot in his mouth. He takes Jesus aside. I love that, right? Peter's like, look, I don't want to shame Jesus in front of the crew. I don't want to embarrass him. So he pulls him aside. He begins to rebuke Jesus. Now this word for rebuke, we've seen it before in Mark's gospel. It's the same word that Jesus used when he rebuked the hurricane on the Sea of Galilee and muzzled it. It's the same word that Jesus used when he rebuked the demons and cast them out of the man. Peter comes and rebukes Jesus. See, Peter knows that Jesus is the Christ, but he has no idea what it means. A dead, rejected Messiah is just incompatible with all of his convictions and his hopes. So Jesus, or so Peter, is going to put Jesus in his place. Here's the problem with that. You don't put Jesus in his place. You don't tell Messiah who he is. Messiah tells you who he is. Now, Jesus is not amused. He doesn't mince any words here because he takes his mission very seriously. This whole scene is reminiscent of Jesus back in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. You see, Satan wanted to offer him a quick and easy escape from the cross. Man, I'll give you all the kingdom and the power if you'll just worship me right now. You don't have to die. You don't have to go that way. And in the same way that Jesus rebuked, rebuked Satan in the wilderness, Jesus rebukes Peter now. See, this time Satan is using Peter. He's infiltrated the crew. And he's using Peter to present Jesus with this powerful temptation to avoid the cross. But Jesus, our greater Adam, does not give in. See, Jesus had to respond sharply to Peter because he needed him to know, I am resolved to fulfill the mission that God has sent me on. And not even you, Peter, can stand in the way. And he tells him, Peter, you know why you're thinking like this? You've got your mind and your heart set on the things of man, not on the things of God. Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. He's got his mind set like his fellow countrymen, See, he wants a Messiah who liberates with an army and military victory, not liberation via death on the cross. He can't fathom a Messiah who reigns from a splintery cross. See, Peter wants comfort and control. He doesn't want to go through the pain of losing a close friend. He doesn't want to uh, uh, go through the hard reality of being associated with Jesus if he's rejected and killed. What if they reject him? What if they come after him? And if I'm honest, I'm just like Peter. See, my problem with the Bible is not its lack of clarity, but its surprising clarity. It confronts me and my expectations, and I have to decide, do I trust God right now? 
or do I just want things to go my way? God, do I trust your plan and your will above my own, even if it means going down a road that involves suffering and pain? See, if I'm honest, I think if we're honest, we spend a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of our energy trying to avoid pain and discomfort. It's like hardwired in us to avoid pain and, and discomfort. But it always comes down to this very simple question. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Do you trust him to go down the road he leads, even if it's not a road that you would go down at first? So we've seen Jesus, the Messiah. He's been identified. Now he's helped them see what it means. Now Jesus is going to lay out the implications. Let's look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. Well, if it weren't enough shock for one day, Jesus lays it on thick today, right? He calls the crowds. He's like, hey, guys, come here. I got something to say. Come here. I need you to hear this too. It's time for them to cross the pain line as well. And in these verses, Jesus spells out the fine prints of what it means to be his disciple, the requirements of what it means to actually follow him. But he doesn't speed through them like when they're listing out the side effects on a Viagra commercial, right? They're just trying to get through it as quickly as possible. Jesus is speaking plainly. He is giving them every detail, everything up front to know this is what it's going to cost you. There's no small print here. See, remember that the crowds at this point have been pretty big fans of Jesus. They've loved his teaching. They've benefited from his miracles. They've loved his presence. But as we head into Jerusalem, we're going to see what the crowds are really made of. We're going to see ultimately that they're fair-weathered friends, and they're going to start to thin out. We've had this theme coming up over and over throughout this series, that excitement and proximity about Jesus does not equal intimacy and relationship with him. Now, it's huge that he calls the crowds in, that he pulls them in. What he's saying is, look, what I'm about to say is not for the varsity team. It's not just for the disciples, kind of my A team. This is for anyone following Jesus. What I'm about to say is for every single person who would want to be called a Christian. It's not just for church leaders. It's not just for the staff. It's not just for the key volunteers, the elders and deacons. This is for anyone who confesses Jesus as Messiah. Not only is it time for the disciples to see clearly who Jesus is and what it means to follow them, it's time for the crowds to make up their minds as well. So there's this tension. Will they follow him even when it's inconvenient and uncomfortable? This is a call to authentic discipleship. No sugarcoating here. No false bill of goods. Listen again to what he said. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is a stringent forward call to self-renunciation and cross-bearing. See, Christians are not detached observers of Jesus' suffering. The Bible says that we are participants. We grow in faith and are formed into his image as we participate in his sufferings. And I think 2,000 years, we are so far removed from the crucifixion that we've tamed it. Like, you're not going to walk outside on Main Street today and see someone being crucified. Our society is much more humane today. And so we'll even glibly talk about what it means to bear our cross. We'll say things like, 
man, had to spend an afternoon at the in-laws today, just bearing my cross, right? In a couple weeks, we'll pay our taxes. Man, had to give some money back to the man, just a cross I have to bear. That's to make light of what it means to bear the cross. These people had witnessed this hideous form of execution. They're not unfamiliar with its heinousness and its gruesomeness. See, people would carry crosses. They'd be forced to carry the very beam they would be hung on. Cross-bearing as a disciple means nothing less than giving up one's whole life to following Jesus. Here's another way to think about it. Jesus is essentially saying, if you want to follow me, you have got to be prepared to shift your center of gravity in your life from a concern to self to reckless abandon to the will of God. You guys know what uh, center of gravity is, right? I've got my physicist in the back over here, right? Center of gravity, don't correct me if I'm wrong, okay? Just let me think what I think, all right? Okay. Got PhDs back there. I don't need all that. All right. The center of gravity is essentially the point where weight is equally, equally distributed and it finds balance, right? Am I good back there? Layman's terms? All right, good. You intuitively know what center of gravity is anytime you've ever tried to balance something. You put something on your finger and it starts to topple and so you, you find that center of balance. And when you do, you can balance something on your finger, right? In sports, we talk about the center of gravity. If you don't have it, that's when you fall over, which I'm not very good at finding it apparently, because I'm not very athletic. What Jesus is saying is, your life is off balance because your center of gravity is off. Let me ask you, in your day-to-day life, do you feel at times that your life is off balance? Why does life feel like it's out of line? Because it is. Because we are born with the wrong center of gravity. And what Jesus is saying is here, you've got to shift that center of gravity around me. I am the one that your life finds balance around. Now, Jesus goes on to give a powerful reasoning for why it's worth it to give it all and follow Jesus. Look what he says in verse uh, verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. What Jesus is saying is there's a principle at work in the world. If you try to save your life on your own, you will lose it. But if you give it up for my sake, you will save it. See, self-protection, self-preservation, self-salvation only results in loss. If you live for you, in the end, you end up with nothing. Deep down, everyone in here knows that that's true. When you value your life above all else, don't you find that it starts to get meaningless? If it's all about you, you are not able to provide a comprehensive meaningfulness and purpose for life. When we live for something bigger, don't we find that life gets enriched? Jesus wants us to find life here. That's exactly what he died for, and he's telling us how to get that life. 
See, every culture will point to certain things and say, build your life on this. And if you'll build your life on this and you get it, you'll make it. You'll be a somebody. You'll feel like your life has meaning. And when you get a self, you'll get yourself. You'll get all the fulfillment, all the meaning and purpose that you've ever wanted when you get whatever the culture says you're supposed to go for. Now your life has value. And so in our culture, it might be your career. We say, look, get a good career. You'll be, you'll be someone important. And when you finally achieve that pinnacle, you can rest. You'll have everything that you've ever wanted. For others, it's reputation and status. You'll see them going for it. They want to make a name for themselves. For other, it's having, or other people, it's having family and friends. Now, none of these things in and of themselves are bad things. I want you to have a good family. I want you to have lots of friends. Go make a career. Build a good reputation. These are good things. That's not the point Jesus is making here. What Jesus is saying is there's a tendency to get caught up in all of the acquiring and all of the gaining and all the achievement in the process. We don't actually live our lives. You look back and you go, I was so busy trying to get a life that I lost it. You're trying to seek a life, and you lose it. We actually don't get an identity worth anything. See, an identity wrapped around all these temporary things will not last. Not to mention, that's best case scenario. What happens when you fail at getting them? What happens when you've put this thing on the pedestal and you've lived all your life to get it, and you don't get it? In your failure, you feel like a failure. Jesus is saying your life has to be about something else, something bigger, something permanent, something real. Mincing no words, Jesus is saying, I am that something bigger. If you live for me, life takes on unrivaled, unprecedented significance and meaning. And then Jesus gives them a profit and loss analogy. I love it. For the business guy in the room, this should be your verse. He says, look, do the numbers if you want. Is it worth gaining the material and the temporary if it costs you your soul? He's saying nothing's more valuable than that. I love how Jim Elliott put it. He was a missionary who died in Ecuador. He said this in his journal right before he died. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. See, if you understand who Jesus really is, if you see him, the Bible says you'll live. And conversely, if you don't see Jesus today, if you don't understand who he is, Jesus said you'll die. See, the stakes are too high to tune out right now. That's why we care so much about the question, who is Jesus? He sums it up at the end and he says, look, if you're ashamed of me today, on that day when I come back, I'll be ashamed of you. At the final judgment, if you're not for me today, I cannot be with you then. And that is a hard truth. But we can't cut that out of the Bible. It's right there. See, Jesus loves us too much not to tell us plainly how it all works. Do you remember earlier when Jesus said that the Son of Man must suffer and be killed? Don't forget he said he must also be raised See, disciples, they, they tuned it out, and they didn't really hear what came after. But Jesus said, the Son of Man will rise again. 
See, the reason we can give up our life and put it in Jesus' hands is because he's the one who conquered death. He can offer life because he is life itself. All of our life has been tainted and ruined by sin and death. And Jesus' resurrection is the only cure to get rid of that, of that decay. When we give up our old life, Jesus exchanges it for new life. Listen to how C.S. Lewis said it. It's kind of long, but it's Lewis, so it's great. He says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you'll find him and with him everything else thrown in. What he's saying is if you want your life resurrected, you've got to give it all to him. Anything that's not given to him cannot be raised. Give it all to Jesus. It's what Lewis is saying. It's what Jesus is saying. It's what we're saying today. That's a truth with implications. It means if we deny ourselves, pick up our crosses and follow him, Jesus says, it's worth it. In the end, he'll give us everything. Now, as we close, I want you to know, it's possible in this chain reaction to get some of the steps right, but to fall off. So you can have the right identity, but miss the interpretation of what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. You might rightly identify him, but not have any clue what it means. Or you could rightly identify him, understand the interpretation of what it means, but fail to implicate that in your lives. You can fail to implement that truth into your life. Are you unwilling, what are you unwilling to give up to him? What in your life are you trying to protect? That you're saying, Jesus, not here. That's not yours. Where are you trying to self-protect and self-gratify? Where have you been unwilling to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him? Let me pray.